Hello, this is Dr. Pengxian Chen, the editor in chief of Heart Rhythm. I am summarizing the April 2022 issue of the journal. The first article is "Active Triggering Ganglionated Plexus Ablation to Prevent Atrial Fibrillation: Ganglia AF Study." The study was to test the hypothesis that ablating the active triggering GPs or ET-GPs prevents AF. A total of 102 randomized patients were analyzed on a per-protocol basis after GP ablation or PVI. Active triggering GP ablation without AV dissociating GP ablation achieved 58%. Or 22 of 38, freedom from the primary endpoint. There was a significantly higher reduction of antiarrhythmic drug usage post-ablation after GP ablation than after PVI. The authors conclude that GP ablation did not prevent atrial arrhythmias more than PVI. However, less radiofrequency ablation was delivered to achieve a higher reduction in antiarrhythmic drug usage. With GP ablation, then with PVI. <clears throat> Next up is empiric ablation of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia fibrillation in the absence of a mappable trigger. The purpose of this study was to report the feasibility and efficacy of a novel empiric ablation strategy of pace mapping to stored ICD template electrogram or site. Of the clinical PVC trigger, regions within the left Purkinje fiber network yielded the best pace map match for the site of the clinical PVC trigger in 55% of ablation targets, followed by RV moderator band region in 14%. Freedom from ICD therapies of antiarrhythmic drug was 64% at six months. And 48% at 12 months. The authors conclude that in the absence of a mappable trigger, an empiric strategy of interrogating the Purkinje network, papillary muscles, and outflow tract regions by pace matching with site of the clinical PVC is feasible to guide ablation. A significant reduction of VF PMVT therapy burden. And antiarrhythmic drug utilization was observed after a single procedure. That paper is followed by isolated critical epicardial arrhythmogenic substrate abnormalities in patients with arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy and ventricular tachycardia. The authors studied 71 consecutive patients with VT who met task force criteria for ARVC. And underwent detailed endo and epi mapping. Twelve patients, or 17 percent, had isolated epicardial substrate. Extensive epi bipolar low voltage area and EGM abnormalities were identified in all patients. A median of two VTs were induced and localized to the isolated epicardial substrate. During follow-up of 56 months. Nine of twelve patients, or seventy-five percent, remained VT-free. In conclusion, substrate abnormalities can uncommonly be isolated 
to the RV-EPI in patients with ARVC and VT. EPI ablation eliminates VT in these patients and typically results in long-term VT-free survival. Next up is high-resolution parahesian mapping and, ablate, and ablation using microelectrode-embedded ablation casters. The purpose of this multi-center prospective study was to test the hypothesis that microelectrode-embedded casters more accurately define the near-field compact AV node compared to conventional casters. Detailed AV junction maps were created in 47 patients using a microelectrode-embedded caster. Ablation at the microelectrode determined his electrogram resulted in AV block after limited ablation in all patients. In the clinical phase, a microelectrode his avoidance strategy could avoid AV block in a prospective registry of 11 patients. In conclusion, the microelectrode embedded caster more accurately defines the region of the compact node, and ablation in this region is associated with high risk for AV block. Microelectrode embedded uh, based mapping has the potential to significantly enhance ablation safety and efficacy. The next article is cardiac deceleration capacity as an indicator for cardioneural ablation in patients with refractory vasovagal syncope. The objective is to investigate the prognostic value of baseline deceleration capacity in patients with refractory vasovagal syncope after cardioneural ablation. This study enrolled 123 patients with a diagnosis of vasovagal syncope. All patients underwent cardioneural ablation that was performed in the left atrium. After a mean follow-up of 4.0 years, 33 patients experienced syncope-presyncope events, or 26.8%. Patients with recurrent syncope-presyncope have a lower baseline deceleration capacity level than do those without. Each 1 millisecond increase in deceleration capacity had a 34% reduced risk of syncope-presyncope recurrence after cardioneural ablation. Nighttime deceleration capacity had the highest discrimination value. The authors found that the baseline nighttime deceleration capacity greater than or equal to 10 milliseconds may act as an indicator for cardioneural ablation in patients with refractory vasovagal syncope. Up next is evaluation of EHRA consensus in patients with cardiovascular implantable electronic devices and the staphylococcus aureus bacteremia. The purpose of this study was to examine the rate and the clinical characteristics of Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, or SAB, in patients living with CIED using the 2019 European Heart Rhythm Association, or EHRA, international consensus document. Overall, 110 patients with CIED developed SAB. 57 or 51.8% and 31 or 28.2% patients 
met criteria for definite and possible CIED infections, respectively. The authors found that CIED extraction was associated with an 83% reduction in risk of one-year mortality in the definite CIED infection group. In conclusion, the rate of CIED infections after SAB was higher than that reported previously. Increased use of TEE and the novel case definition with broader diagnostic criteria likely were operative, in part, in accounting for the higher rate of CIED infections complicating SAB. Complete device removal is critical in patients with definite CIED infection to improve one-year mortality. Coming up is QT prolongation in patients with index evaluation for seizure or epilepsy is predictive of all-cause mortality. The authors performed a retrospective cohort study including all patients seen at Mayo Clinic with index evaluation for seizure or epilepsy. An ECG was obtained in 18,222 patients, or 57.4%, after patients with confounding ECG findings were excluded. Primary prolonged QT intervals were seen in 223 cases, or 1.4%, similar to the general population. Kaplan-Meier analysis demonstrated a significant increase in mortality with Cox hazard ratio 1.9 for prolonged optimal cutoff QT. The authors conclude that a prolonged optimal cutoff QTC interval predicts all-cause mortality in patients evaluated for seizure and those diagnosed with epilepsy. The authors advocate the routine use of a 12-lead ECG at index evaluation in patients with seizure or epilepsy. The next article is relationship between life-threatening events and electromechanical window in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The authors enrolled 458 patients with a mean age of 52.4 years. The electromechanical window, or EMW, is defined as the interval between the Q-wave and aortic valve closure minus the QT interval. The EMW was more negative in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy than in normal controls. Life-threatening events occurred in 25 patients, or 5.5%. EMW was more negative in patients with life-threatening events than in those without. The cutoff value of EMW to identify patients with life-threatening events was minus 54 milliseconds. EMW less than minus 54 milliseconds, unexplained syncope, pediatric onset, and extreme left ventricular hypertrophy were significant risk factors for life-threatening events on multivariate analysis. In conclusion, EMW was more negative in patients with SHCM, or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, than in healthy controls. And the profound EMW negativity was an independent risk factor for life-threatening events. EMW 
can be useful for risk stratification of sudden cardiac deaths in patients with HCM. The next one is the importance of early evaluation after cardiac resynchronization therapy to redefine response. Pooled individual patient analysis from five prospective studies. Individual patient data from five prospective CRT studies were pooled. Classification of CRT response status using clinical composite score and LVN systolic volume index were made at six months. Among a total of 1,603 patients, mortality was significantly lower for patients in the improved and stabilized groups than in the worsened group for both measures after adjusting for potential confounders. The authors conclude that patients with a worsened CRT response status have a high mortality rate and heart failure-related hospitalizations. Stabilized patients have a more favorable prognosis than to worsen patients and thus should not be considered CRT non-responders. The following article is Lower Body Muscle Pre-Activation and Tensing Mitigate Symptoms of Initial Orthostatic Hypotension in Young Females. Initial orthostatic hypotension, or IOH, is a form of orthostatic intolerance defined by a transient decrease in blood pressure upon standing. The purpose of this study was to provide IOH patients with effective symptom management techniques. Study participants completed three sit-to-stand maneuvers, including a stand with no intervention, which is control, lower body pre-activation or pre-act, and lower body muscle tensing or tense. A total of 24 female IOH participants completed this study. The drops in mean arterial pressure following pre-act and tense were significantly reduced compared to control. The authors conclude that both the drop in mean arterial pressure and the symptoms upon standing improved with either pre-act or tense. These maneuvers provide novel symptom management techniques for patients with IOH. Next up is dysautonomia following COVID-19 is not associated with subjective limitations or symptoms, but is associated with objective functional limitations. The authors studied patients referred to post-COVID-19 service and found 51 of the 205 patients, or 25%, reviewed as part of the service evaluation had dysautonomia. There were no associations between symptoms or perceived functional limitation and dysautonomia. Patients with dysautonomia demonstrated objective functional limitations with significantly reduced work rate and peak oxygen consumption and the steeper or less efficient V.E over V.CO2 slope. The authors conclude that dysautonomia is associated with objective functional limitations, but is not associated with subjective symptoms or limitation. The next article is Women in Procedural Leadership Roles in Cardiology. The Well, a Woman in 
Local Leadership Observational Study. Although 50% of U.S. medical students are women, this percentage fails to translate to cardiology. The authors collected data on Watchman implants and hospitals from January 2017 to December 2018. Men comprised 97% of implanters, or 806 over 886. EP made up 61% of implanters. Women represented less than 1% of the directors of interventional cardiology. And only 2.6% of both directors of EP and chiefs of cardiology. Hospitals with women in leadership and had a four times greater odds of a woman implanter. The authors conclude that women are underrepresented in cardiology procedural subspecialties, in the use of novel technology and in key leadership roles. There was a greater odds of women. Early implanters or watchmen, if a woman led locally, increasing women in leadership may improve gender diversity through visibility of role models. Up next is association between nocturnal heart rate variability and instant cardiovascular disease events, the Hypno-Laos population-based study. A total of 1,784 participants from the Hypno-Laos population-based cohort, free of cardiovascular disease at baseline, were included. Among them, 67 participants, or 3.8 percent, developed cardiovascular disease over a mean follow-up of 4.1 plus-minus 1.1 years. In a fully adjusted model, acceleration capacity. Deceleration capacity and heart rate fragmentation were the only HRV metrics significantly associated with instant cardiovascular disease events after controlling for false discovery rate. The authors conclude that the nocturnal novel HRV parameters are better predictors of cardiovascular disease events than time and frequency traditional HRV parameters. Up next is instance of life-threatening events in children with Wolff-Parkinson-White syndrome. Analysis of a large claims database. A retrospective cohort study was conducted using claims data. The authors found that the prevalence of WPW syndrome was 0.03 percent, or 8,733 over 26 million. Over a median follow-up of 1.6 years, a life-threatening event occurred in 49 subjects, or 0.7 percent, including VF in 20, or 0.3 percent. The instance of VF was 0.8 events per 1,000 person years. There were no recurrences of VF in controls. The rate of life-threatening event was 70 times higher in subjects with WPW syndrome than in controls. The observed range of 0.8 to 1.9 events per 1,000 person years is consistent with prior reports from selected populations. A comparison of event rates to matched controls confirms and quantifies the significant elevation in VF and life-threatening event risk. In pediatric WPW syndrome, 
The next paper is castor ablation in adult congenital heart disease on uninterrupted oral anticoagulation. Is it safe? Data from a large single-center study. Retrospective analysis of 234 ACHD patients undergoing 360 ablation procedures on uninterrupted oral anticoagulation was undertaken. No thromboembolic complications occurred. Major complications occurred in four patients, or 1.1%. The authors conclude that castor ablation in ACHD patients on uninterrupted oral anticoagulation is feasible and safe. No thromboembolic events occurred, and major bleeding or vascular access complications were rare. No significant differences regarding minor bleeding or vascular access complications between patients on DOAC or vitamin K antagonists were found. The following article is cardiac resynchronization therapy in congenital heart disease patients with, uh, with systemic right ventricle. The authors aim to analyze outcomes of patients with systemic right ventricle implanted with a CRT device. A total of 85 patients with congenital heart disease, or CHD, were enrolled, including 31 patients with systemic right ventricle. The proportion of CRT responders at 6, 12, and 24 months were 82.6%, 80.0%, and 77.8% in patients with systemic right ventricle, which was not significantly different then 66.7%, 64.3%, and 69.6% respectively in patients with systemic left ventricle. In this multi-center cohort, one-third of patients with CHD implanted with a CRT device had systemic right ventricle. CRT in patients with systemic right ventricle was associated with high rate of responders, comparable to that of patients with systemic left ventricle. Next up is developmental changes in cardiac expression of KCNQ1 and SCN5A spliceoforms implications for sudden unexpected infant deaths. The authors quantified expression of SCN5A and the KCNQ1 spliceoforms in 153 human cardiac tissue samples from decedents that died of sudden unexpected infant deaths and other known causes of death. There is stepwise increase in the adult slash fetal SCN5A spliceoforms ratio from less than two months through infancy and into adulthood. For KCNQ1, there is a decrease in the ratio of KCNQ1B to KCNQ1A between less than two months and the two to four months age groups. The authors conclude that this study documents the developmental changes in SCN5A and KCNQ1 spliceoforms in humans. This data suggests that spliceoform expression ratios change significantly throughout the first year of life. The last paper is use of machine learning to classify high-risk variants of uncertain significance in Lamin 
AC cardiac disease. Genetic sequencing was performed on family members with conduction system disease, and patient cell lines were examined for LMNA expression. The authors discovered a novel LMNA variant segregating with conduction system disease in a multi-generation pedigree, which was reported as a VOS by a commercial testing company. Additional familial analysis and in vitro testing found it to be pathogenic, which prompted the development of a machine learning algorithm that used in silico predictions of pathogenicity of non-LMNA missense variants. This identified three clusters of variation, each with a significantly different instance of non-pathogenic variants. The authors conclude that their unsupervised machine learning method successfully identified clusters enriched for pathogenic LMNA variants, including a novel variant associated with conduction system disease. Our machine learning method may assist in identifying high-risk VOS when familial testing is unavailable. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm the Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Peng Xian Chen.